Good morning, Saints. Thank you. Uh, we are indeed um, thankful uh, for this time together, and um, we pray that um, we pray that the Lord may be with us as we dig into the scriptures. Um, it truly is an honor, dear friends, to share the word with you. Uh, without much ado, let us go into the word. The scripture for today is found in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19. Starting from verse 27 up to Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, starting from verse 27, reading up to Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. If we have found it, it reads thus. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and send them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his four men, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and we have made them equal to us. We have borne the, the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered, 
one of the, but he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Do I not have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear him. May we bow our heads. Our glorious God and Father, we come before you this morning aware of unworthiness to demand anything of you. Yet, O oh Lord, emboldened by the grace and mercy you have shown us through our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, even now, O oh Father, your spirit, the spirit of truth and grace, the spirit of righteousness and justice, the spirit of all comfort bids us come. And, O oh Father, we do come. Our hearts open to receive of your goodness and mercy. May we, O oh Father, taste and see that indeed you are good. Amen. Our primary focus for today is really on the parable of the workers in Matthew chapter 20. Though we need to know that the background to correctly understanding this parable is reflected in Matthew starting from verse 13 up to the end of Matthew. But for the sake of time, dear friends, may, may we start reflecting from verse 27. Proceeding under the title, an eccentric faith. Proceeding under the title, an eccentric faith. Let us dig into the word. May I first ask, uh, dear friends, what comes to your mind when you hear the word eccentric? What comes to your mind when you hear the word eccentric? And, and, and I suspect there are two possibilities. I, I suspect that some have not heard of the word or are not familiar with the word. Um, I suspect also the, the second possibility that those who are familiar with the word are, are, probably, are probably thinking uh, crazy weird, odd, strange, things that, that, that do not feed people who do not, who do not fit into society, or, or any, any implications of, of, such, of such a word. Therefore, I, I also suspect that uh, whatever definition that comes to your mind, you, you are probably feeling being eccentric is not something that belongs to a Christian. After all, Christians are supposed to be orderly people, are they not? Uh, Christians are supposed to live exemplary lives. May I propose today, dear, dear friends, that we, we seek to redeem this good word, eccentric. Let, let us seek to redeem this good word because the church needs this word. The word eccentric comes from a combination of two Greek words. One, ek, meaning out of. The second word, kentron, meaning center. So that when these two words are brought together, they form ekentron, meaning out of center. Ekentron meaning out of center. And it is this that we get our English word from eccentric. The word really came to 
gain its true meaning in the Middle Ages when, when astronomers such as Copernican dared to suggest that the Earth was not the center of the solar system, but rather that the Earth orbited or revolved around the sun. Now, now I suspect you, you are wondering, but what does this have to do with us? This concept very clearly pictures what should characterize the identity of a Christian. Professor Richard Berg, a Christian psychologist at Abilene Christian University, argues like this. He says, an eccentric identity, an eccentric faith, is an, is an identity where the focal point, where the center or the axis of rotation is not me, but God. It is an identity where the ego, in a kind of Copernican revolution, is displaced from being the center of the universe to orbiting around God and his eternal redemptive purposes. Therefore, Christians are, in principle, the ultimate eccentrics. But may we dare to ask ourselves, dear friends, are we eccentrics indeed? Are we out of center in our daily experience, revolving around God's redemptive purposes? Let us consider three characteristics of an eccentric faith, an eccentric identity from the parable of the workers. Number one, an eccentric faith, an eccentric faith does not bargain with God. It is too aware that it is unqualified to negotiate with the Almighty. Number two, an eccentric faith, an eccentric identity, trusts in the perfect justice of God. An eccentric faith trusts in the perfect justice of God. And lastly, an eccentric faith rejoices and delights in the grace of God. Let us first reflect a bit, uh, dear friends, on the background to this parable. What, is, what, what happened before the Lord Jesus articulated this parable? Jesus had just told a pompous, rich young man that if he wants to, if he wants to be his disciple, he must give away the wealth that very evidently ruled him and, and in, in which he found his identity. When this rich young man goes away, having refused to take up Jesus' challenge to give away his wealth, Jesus looks at his disciples and comments on how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. But something very interesting happens immediately there. G Peter, who, who by the way, we need to remember, Peter, uh, earlier in the, the gospel narratives, we learned that Peter had taken, up, had taken up Jesus' challenge to leave behind a thriving fishing business to become uh, the lost disciple. Now, Peter answers the Lord Jesus like this seemingly very proud of himself. He says, see, 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 unlike this foolish young man, see, we, unlike this foolish young man, we have left everything to follow you. And, and he does not leave it there. Peter does not leave it there. He, then, he's, then he goes on. But, but tell me, Lord Jesus, what's in it for us? 
What are you going to get out of this? The question looks very innocent, dear friends. Um, but Jesus sees right through to the root of what Peter is asking. And what is Peter asking? You, you, using today's language, Peter is effectively saying, Lord Jesus, we have rubbed your back big time. When are we going to rub our back? Now, Jesus immediately addresses this gospel-denying motivation behind Peter's question by telling the parable of the workers. But, but you just really have to, to love the, the pastoral heart of the Lord Jesus. Instead of harshly rebuking Peter, he first assures him of three things. He first assures him of three things, very pastorally, very gently in heart. Firstly, he says to, the Paul, he says to Peter, okay, I, I, I understand, Peter. But here it is. You apostles have a special place in God's redemptive purposes, in God's redemptive agenda. Uh, we, we will not go into the, uh, the details of that agenda. Secondly, the Lord says to Peter, he says to Peter, not only you, but every Christian, immediately now, every Christian is at liberty to have as many homes, to have as many children, as many mothers, as many fathers, as many sisters, as many brothers, as he or she is willing to live in loving, humble fellowship with the church community. You will decide, Peter, if you want to have all these things, they are yours. Lastly, ultimately, whatever Christian may or may not enjoy in the here and now, he, it, ultimately, he is guaranteed of a joyous eternity with God. But at the very end, a very big but that the Lord is saying to Peter, but Peter, Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, now, now what is the Lord Jesus saying to Peter? Why, why such an anticlimax to such comforting words? Jesus is saying, Peter, your attitude, your, the state of your heart will determine whether you find joy and delight in this privileges. They are yours, but your state of your heart will determine whether you find joy and delight in these privileges and in this uh, right that you have. D.A. Cousin writes, this proverb is a way of setting forth God's grace over against all notions that the rich, powerful, great, and prominent will continue so in the kingdom. It is rather those who approach God in childlike trust, as, as Matthew 19 verse 13 shows, who, who, will who will be received and advanced in the kingdom beyond those who from the world's perspective enjoy prominence now. In essence, it is the eccentrics, it is those whose egos are off-center. Those who, have, who do not have a distorted sense of their importance those who are truly and sincerely able after doing anything great or small, who are truly able to say, as the Lord commanded, when you have done anything, say that I am just an unprofitable servant. That is Luke 17, dear friends. By the way, we need to emphasize, I, I can only say that to myself. I can never say it to someone else. I am an unprofitable servant. 
Therefore, friends, I, I must ask this morning, are we enjoying the privileges and joys of being a Christian? If not, the question is why not? The Lord Jesus might be saying here to us, the reason you're not enjoying these delights of being a Christian have something to do with my self-centeredness and my unwillingness to live in self-giving fellowship with the community of faith. But the Lord Jesus does not stop there. He does not leave the matter there. He realized too clearly the danger of Peter's attitude. He, real, he says to Peter and the other disciples, and by extension, you and I, become eccentric. Get your ego of center and, and go on a merry-go-round, swinging joyfully in the arms of our loving Father. Do, do we know, dear friends, how, how a merry-go-round works? Um, if the center of a merry-go-round does not hold, there cannot be any swinging. In the same way, if, 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 if I'm not pulled away from the center, there cannot be swinging. And if there cannot be any swinging, there cannot be any joy. Ask any child, he, he will tell you that. Let us look deeper at this parable. Firstly, let us answer, what is a parable? Especially as Jesus, used by Jesus to reveal his kingdom values and ethics. Um, may I answer like this? A parable is a story or narrative using real life examples and circumstances. But, nice catch, but some of the characters behave very abnormally, behave very eccentrically, excuse the pun. Uh, to illustrate the countercultural values of the kingdom. These parables typically start with the words, the kingdom of God is like, in order to represent what God's kingdom values are like. Meaning, what happens when the ethics and value systems that are dear to God's heart are let loose upon the heart of men. So Jesus then tells this parable, as we said, to accentuate three characteristics of an eccentric faith, of an out-centered faith. Number one, an eccentric faith does not negotiate with God. Let's read again verses 21 to 7. Verse 21 to 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for a day and send them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said, you also go and work in my vineyard. 
The parable, friends, gives here five groups of day laborers who were hired by this farmer at different times of the day. Now let us paint a picture of how this would have looked like. And, and I believe if, if anyone here has driven behind the back street towards Bersa, you will more or less have an idea how this is. This was a farming society where practically everything, the, 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 the social, the economic, the cultural identity of the community was in one form or another linked up to farming, family-owned farming enterprises. Now, what would happen is that for one reason or another, but most especially because of a political and, and economic exploitation, what would happen is that some of the families would lose their family, they would lose their ancestral lands, and would therefore be left with no means of sustaining their families. Naturally, the people most affected would be the weak and the defenseless. For, for, for example, widows, many widows, upon the, the death of their husband, would be, would, the, the, their lands would be taken away from them so that their, their, their children and, them, and themselves are left uh, to, be, to be destitute. Also, in a shame and honor society that prevailed then, um, where physical strength and, and agility were highly regarded, mental, uh, physical or mental disability was a great liability. People looked down on, 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 on those who, who were physically disabled, who, on those who, who were not as bright. Therefore, this, this broad range of the unemployed and the unemployable would, would together meet and converge at the marketplace every morning hoping to be hired by the rich and mighty who'd be coming to the marketplace to trade and share their farming produce. Now, for, for a day's wage, um, a day laborer, if, if hired like that, would receive one denarius, which was barely able to put one meal on the table for an entire family. In such a situation, we need to note, in such a situation, naturally the, the, the most able, meaning the strongest looking, uh, as well as uh, perhaps those who are most resources, maybe, maybe those carrying uh, a spade or a fork or any other useful tool, naturally those would be hired first. However, what, what we need to emphasize here, dear friends, is that in spite of all other external providence, providential circumstance, this group, all these people were essentially sharing one thing in common. They did not have their own farms. Two, they were in desperate need of being hired by one rich, young, one, one rich man coming through to hire them for a day's wage so that they can put something on the table. Now remember, friends, we said we, we have five groups. However, when, when, when we look deeper at the text, we, we realize that we do not, in fact, have five groups, but two groups. What is the, what is the difference? The fundamental difference is this. Uh, the, the, we have two groups distinguished by their attitude, distinguished by the state of their heart. On one hand, we have the group that believes that it has the right and capacity to negotiate with the landowner. 
On the other hand, we have the rest of the people who, 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 who are too well aware of their desperate situations and dare not try to negotiate with the landowner. How do we know this? Verse 2 tells us that with the first group, the one hired at 6 in the morning, the landowner agreed with them for a denarius. While verse 5 and 7 tells us no bargaining or negotiation with the rest of the groups took place. Now, now we, we will not discuss uh, who started the bargaining council in the first hiring session. Uh, though, if we look closely at the grammar of verse 2, we, 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 it seems very much to suggest that the, the, the first laborers actually started to negotiate. It was not the landowner who started to negotiate. Because Jesus says the landowner agreed with them, not them agreeing with the landowner. So the landowner agreed to that proposition. Nonetheless, irrespective of whoever started it, what is very clear is this bargaining and negotiation took place. These workers went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the landowner to ensure that there is no prospect of the landowner cheating them. Friends, do, do, we, do we realize how foolish this group really is? By not only pushing this deal, but actually seeing, signing that the best they can ever get for that day is one denarius and nothing more. Signing that deal, they cannot get anything more than a denarius, which was barely enough to feed a family even once. Dear friend, may, may I ask us this morning, are, are there contracts that you and I have set with God? Are, are, you, are you like Peter asking, what am I going to get out of this? Or are we like the rest of the laborers who, who were hired later? who've been very aware of their desperate situation, dare not, but only to entrust themselves to the perfect justice of the landowner. Yes, point number two, an eccentric faith trusts in the perfect justice of God. As you read there from verse 3 to 14, we are, we are left asking ourselves, uh, what really caused this group, this first group, to, to behave as it did? Maybe, maybe to ask it differently, um, did, did their inflated sense of importance cause their distorted view of the character of the landowner? Their inflated sense of importance caused them to dishonor, to, to undermine the landowner. Or was it the, the, the distorted sense of the, of the character of the landowner that caused them to be so self-centered? I think, I think, dear friends, a, a strong case can be, can be made for either case. And, and indeed, um, they, they would have fed into each other. They were proud, therefore they undermined the landowner. Or, or they, 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 they undermined the landowner and therefore thought they were better and became proud. And um, we cannot in any way, dear friends, undermine um, whatever may have gone behind, uh, they, they, these people would have lost their lands and then they, may have, they, may, they might have been exploited previously by other landowners. But surely they had opportunity to see, to be humbled 
by the character of this specific landowner. Just look at how the landowner conducts himself as he meets with the rest of the groups. Time and again, seeking to assure them, I will not cheat you. I will give you what is right. Therefore, even for this group, even if they were blind to see the landowner in the morning, surely later on in the afternoon, when he called them to pay them, they had an opportunity to be, to be humbled, to, to, to see he's not like the others. To testify to his justice. But rather, rather than arguing about the payment, which by the way, they were the one who had insisted that they get that. They were the one who had insisted that they get paid the denarius, but, but, but they are willing, they are eager to complain. Should they not at least have hung their heads in shame as the landowner paid them a just payment, a payment for which they had negotiated? On what basis were they emboldened to expect the landowner to give them more? Except, of course, by, by assuming that the landowner was not a man of his word. They set the contract. When the landowner honors his word, they complain. The only reason can, can only have been that they, 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 they did not expect the landowner to be a man of his word. Not only that, it is clear that this first group got to see the wages of all the other four groups. How do we know this, dear friends? The question is, how else did they know how much the others received? How else did they know how much the others received? And yet, having seen that salaries were all the same, including the ones that only started three hours after them, this, the group that started at 9 o'clock in the morning also received the same as them, not just the, not just the, 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 the other four groups. What is it? but sheer pride that makes them believe they alone should get more. What is it but sheer pride that, that makes them, uh, that they alone, no, no one else should get more, but uh, they, they alone must get more. Yes, instead of being convicted and humbled for their poor attitudes, they end onto it jealousy and envy and increasing pride. Is this not what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1? We, we read, as, as you read to us the latter part of chapter, Romans chapter 1, that our conscious refusal to recognize the glory of God, to, to recognize the attributes of God, feeds our lustful desires. When our consciences convicted, when, when God's power and glory is revealed, even in creation, we yet suppress it. Insisting on being captains of our lives, we demand our freedom and justice. We demand our freedom and, and rights. But when God in his perfect justice and righteousness gives us our self-centered wills and desires, like, like this first group, we complain. We, we, they insisted on being So When they get the denarius, they complain. So dear, dear brothers, dear, dear sister, I want to exhort you, I want to plead with you, do believe that God will give you an eye what is just. For surely the judge of the whole world knows how to do right. 
But dear friend, if, if that's all we believe, we, we are in a terrible position. Then we are no different from a Jew or a Muslim and should in fact be trembling in our shoes. Because much as we want to believe that we are actually part of the first group, which we have just shown, dear friends, it is not a good place to be in. We are not really in the first group, but in the last group. Which, by the way, it's, it's not a good place to be in. We, we are, in fact, the last group, and like them, we are in desperate need of God's mercy. So that we, we, we need to understand, as point number three here, once we, we want to accentuate in ten point number three here, an eccentric faith, an out-centered faith, delights and rejoices in God's grace, accepts its weak position, its desperate needs for God's mercy, and delights and rejoices in it. Because we, we must ask ourselves, do, do we realize, dear friends, that there is a reason why the last group stood idle at the marketplace the whole day? As we read there, um, the... the, 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 the the, the, the landowner asked the last group, why have you been standing here the whole day? There is a reason, friends, why this last group stood idle the whole day. Very likely, they were, they were not very employable. They were, they were unemployable, not just only unemployed, but unemployable. After all, who, who are the people who are least likely to be hired in a farming economy? It, it will be those who are lame, those who are disabled. Uh, in short, those who have nothing to contribute in terms of manpower or ideas. Those would the whole day be passed by as the landowners seek to hire servants. And such, dear friends, were you and I. Or perhaps are we under any illusion uh, of, of our credentials? Do, 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 do we perhaps think that there is anything in our CV that, that God may, may look at and think he is worthy to be hired? To save us. Yet, dear friends, we have been hired. At five o'clock, when, when we have nothing to contribute, we have been hired. In fact, I, I, by the mercies of God, I aim to show you that not only have we been hired, but we have also been given a full salary. And better still, more than a full salary, we have been adopted to inherit the vineyard. Amazing grace. Therefore, you, you and I should delight and rejoice in this amazing grace. As we look, as we look in, the, in the, last, the last two verses, verse 15 and, and, and 16, maybe, may, may I just read it? Verse 15 and, and verse 16. It says, don't I, as, 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 as this group is complaining, the landowner is replying, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. When you read from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, starting from verse 26, 
the apostle Paul makes very clear that not many wise according to the flesh, not, not many mighty, not many of good reputation are chosen, but the foolish, the weak things of this world to shame the wise. Therefore, friends, let us willingly accept our rightful position as beggars, dear friends, and grace shall exalt us. But I want us to, to see something else that's very glorious in this. And if we can but see it, we will be humbled by the grace of God. How did it practically happen, friends, that the last group could receive the same amount as the groups before? How did it happen that the last groups, though hired last, worked only for an hour? How did it happen that they could receive the same amount as all the other groups? Because economically speaking and, and um, culturally speaking, if we, if we use the principle of equal work and equal pay, th this, dear friends, was very unjust, was it not? This, this, this was unjust. Equal work, equal pay, this is not fair. Some injustice, therefore, did indeed take place. Let, let me use the parable of the prodigal son to illustrate this. Um, go to Luke 15 when you get home. In ancient traditional law, when, when, when the father died, when the father died, the eldest son inherited two-thirds of the estate. When, when a father died, the, the eldest inherited two-thirds of the estate. And the, the younger siblings, the younger male siblings would, would share the remaining one-third. This, this, friends, was a, was a law. So when the youngest son, the prodigal son, went away with his one-third after demanding it from his father and squandered it and lost it, what remained, it meant the eldest brother would inherit the two-thirds when, when, the, when the father passed on. So the two-thirds that remained was effectively the older brothers, was it not? Therefore, Friends, when the youngest son came back with nothing in his hands, it simply meant that the older brother would now have to share what was his. Do we understand why he was angry like that? But should he have been angry? The issue, as many theologians have showed, was the, older, the problem here was the older brother's perspective, the state of his heart. In terms of the law, yes, he had a right to be angry. But, but the problem is this, the older brother loved his rights and privileges more than he loved the giver of the rights and privileges. Fortunately, in our current parable, unlike the first group who, who insisted upon their rights and defended their rights, the, the, the groups two to four at least got this principle right. They, in a small way, were willing to experience loss so that the last group could benefit. And, and, and friends, you, 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 you might be sitting here and, and thinking, but, but that's not fair. And you're right, it's not fair. Because grace is never fair. Still, you and I are called to such a life. To joyfully lose so that others may gain. But friends, we, we will never be able to do this 
until we understand at a very deep level that God is asking us nothing more than what he himself has done. When you read uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, starting from verse 5 up to verse 11, it's, 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 it's a chant of what the Lord Jesus did. Though equal with God, he did not cling onto his rights, into his, into his heavenly rights, but humbled himself, letting go of what was rightfully his. Because, friends, it's only as you and I not see the real landowner of the universe, when we see the one by whom and, and for whom and through whom all things were created, when we see him, Leaving his father's perfect vineyard. Going out to, to search for people who have absolutely no good reference on their CV. Going out to the marketplace and, and, and high, not only hiring them, dear friends, but guess what? He, he makes them co-heirs with him of the whole farm, of, of the whole vineyard. Does that sound too good to be true? But the reality is even sweeter, dear friends. You, you, you remember what, what, what happened on, on the cross at Calvary. This is what happened. Jesus, our older brother, our perfect older brother, the, the, the perfect first one, he cried on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was happening here? On that dark afternoon in Jerusalem, Jesus literally lost his inheritance of the vineyard in order to rewrite our, our CV. Though we were, we were like this last group, uh, desperate and, and without any hope, without any solace, on the cross as he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? What is happening, dear friends? He's losing the vineyard to rewrite our history. The fullness of his rights and privileges as a legitimate son of the lone owner were given to us. And that curtain tears apart. We are given right access to the father on his account while he loses and is cast up, cast away. Through his death, we obtained a perfect record. Three days later when he rose, we rose with him. And, and when he ascended, we ascended with him and even now are hidden with him in God. Therefore, having received all spiritual blessings and standing upon great and precious promises, as, 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 as Apostle Peter tells us, we are now fully enabled to partake of the divine nature. We are now able to do the work in the vineyard. We are no longer lame. We are no longer weak. Christ in us, the hope of all glory. Amazing grace. Do we see, friends, how, we became the, how, how, how he became the ultimate eccentric for us? Going off-center. In fact, more than going off-center. But even worse than that, on that cross, losing all contact with the center. Losing all sense of the presence of his father. And shouting, my God, clutching in the dark, not seeing the presence of his father. May I ask, what do you think, dear friends, caused a self-centered, self-satisfied Pharisee like Saul of Tarsus, 
to get to a point where he could become the great Apostle Paul. The one who could say the following words with such conviction and passion. I will very gladly spend everything, not only my resources, but also spend my very life for your sake. For I consider my life of no value to me if, I may, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me. The reason he could get to the point of saying that, dear friends, he had tasted of this grace. He had come face to face with the ultimate eccentric. And the result was that he became one himself. And was forever willing to be last and not the first. So shall we be, dear friends, if we reflect deep enough in this truth. The Lord is your Redeemer. His perfect record is ours. Amen. May we bow our heads. Glorious Father, we, we rejoice in the knowledge that you, O Lord God, are ours. We are Father. We are your children. May this truth, O glorious Lord, go deep into our hearts. And knowing, may we walk in the freedom and the liberty of your children. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.